Well, this morning we're talking to how God, we're talking about how God is greater than religion. Now that word religion is a very unique word. It's a very interesting word. I think a lot of times in our present culture, uh, would, would you guys say that it has kind of more of a positive bent or a negative bent when you hear that somebody's really religious? If you hear somebody like, oh yeah, my aunt's coming over tonight for dinner when you guys are coming. Uh, yeah, she's really religious. Or like, yeah, we just hired a new coworker to be on the team with you. Uh, the one thing I want to tell you about them, they're, they're really religious. What does that mean to you? Oh boy. Buckle up. Be careful what you say. Be careful what topics you start talking about. Like, you know, it, it can kind of have the connotation that, man, it's not the most positive thing in the world, right? People that are religious. Well, we're talking about how God is greater than religion. And I think it's very important for us this morning to define what we mean by religion. Okay, and our definition for this morning is that religion is an organized system designed to help attempt to get favor or approval from God. So we're defining religion as a system of belief, something that's organized, whose sole purpose is to help you get favor from God. And that's important for us this morning because we're going to be comparing um, the religion side of it, this man-made external side of life to what it truly means to have an intimate relationship with God. When you talk about religion, um, it's really interesting how many religions there actually are. Uh, would you be surprised if I told you that according to several sources, there are uh, the number of actual registered religions, okay? Not just, a, you know, a hundred weird people creating some religion. These are like registered, recognized world religions. There are 4,200 religions in the world. Think about that on a giant piece of paper. 4,200 different religions, and many of us have been caught up in a society where we picture a lot of our relationship with God to be in that vein over here of some sort of organized system where please just tell me what I need to do in order to get favor from God. And what we're going to do here this morning is we're going to compare that economy to the economy of a relationship with God. And our illustration for this morning and the narrative that we're going to be diving into is the life of Elijah. Turning your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. If you have to look at the table of contents, uh, that's okay. The Old Testament is pretty complicated, trying to weed around in there, that's all right. 1 Kings chapter 17. This morning is going to be a very unique morning. A lot of times, Brian and I are speaking, and Matt, it's like, all right, we want to take this passage right here, these three verses, or these six verses, or these, are, these eight verses, and this is our message for this morning. Today, we're going to be covering three chapters of 1 Kings. It's an incredible narrative that we're going to have to summarize large portions of. But I think that if we enter into this story, we'll see what God has for us this morning. And I've kind of um, broken it up into three different acts. Okay, picture this like a play or like a movie. All right, uh, and the first one is in chapter 17, the second one's in chapter 18, and the third one's there in chapter 19. The first one, what we want to talk about if you're taking notes, so we talk and dive into the life of Elijah. Act one is preparation in the quiet. 
preparation in the quiet. Now, if we want to be like Elijah in our lives, we're going to have to dive into his world and see what happened. I don't know how much you know about this prophet, but especially amongst the Jewish people, Elijah is held up as one of the hallmark, incredible heroes of the faith. Elijah is known as a man of passion. As a matter of fact, uh, it was in the New Testament with Jesus that on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus went up to the mountainside and two other figures just appeared in a bright light, one of them was Elijah and the other one was Moses. Very important in the life of Jesus. He recognized that. In the Old Testament, Elijah uh, was honored and revered as this passionate prophet that had responsibility Further on in the future at the forerunner of the Messiah. You remember at the end of Malachi, uh, the prophecy that we talked about, if you were here as any part of our Christmas service, where it talked about when the Messiah is about ready to come, I will send someone in the spirit of Elijah. And in the New Testament, that was recognized that this is John the Baptist. This is the one, this wild, crazy man dressed in these weird clothes, obscure out in the wilderness, shouting and preaching about the the, the king is coming. That's somebody in the spirit of Elijah. As a matter of fact, when a lot of people were looking at the life of Jesus and how he was such a passionate person and how he went through the temple and overturned the tables in that great account because the temple uh, that was meant for prayer had become a den of robbers and they saw the zeal of Jesus and many said, even when he was on the cross, uh, who could this be? Maybe it's Elijah because he was known as a man of passion. So here in scripture, we see uh, these three different acts of what God did um, in the life of Elijah. And we're just going to have to dive right in here. At this situation, the backdrop of this situation is that the nation of Israel was in trouble. They had a king who had been reigning for over 20 years. His name was Ahab. And in chapter 16, verse, um, verse 30, it says, And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. In verse 33, it said, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So two separate times it's mentioned that Ahab was bad news. Ahab was the one responsible, along with his wife Jezebel, To create all of these temples of Baal and temples of Asherah in the nation of Israel. Remember that. He was the king of Israel, the king of God's people. And yet he's taking these temples that were set aside for worship of God. And instead he's putting idols of Baal and Asherah. Two deities, one male, one female, up all over the nation. So God said the time has come. A change is going to happen in the nation And Elijah, you're going to be my guy. We're going to see it happen. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite um, of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. God had empowered this man and said, I am going to cause a famine in the land of Israel. 
And Elijah, I'm going to use you to communicate this to Ahab. And I'm going to use you at your word. When you say it's time, I'm going to use you to finally bring rain upon the land so that all will know that I am God. So he was empowered by God to be an agent of change in the nation of Israel. So the very first thing that happens is Elijah goes off into the wilderness, it says. It says he went off into the wilderness in these first um, seven verses, and there he laid down by a brook. I can resonate with that. I love running water, and brooks are one of my favorite places. And so there's Elijah, and he's just laying down, and he's just receiving God pouring into him in the silence, in the solitude, this preparation, in the quiet. And it says that God provided for him in the morning and in the evening both bread and meat from a raven. Not like eating a raven, a bird, but like the raven would bring meat. The raven would bring meat. Like bacon in the morning, maybe sausage, a T-bone at night. I don't know. How obscure is that? It's so weird to read through and you're like, oh, all right. But this is the rhythm that God was working on for Elijah because he said, I need to prepare you in the secret, in the solitude for what you're going to experience. The story gets even a little bit more interesting. Starting in verse 8, you've got an account where the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, I want you to go down to this town. I want you to go down to this town and there's going to be a widow there. And I want you to stay with her, Elijah. And so he begins to obey her. The town's name is Zarephath. And uh, skip down to verse 10. It says, so he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. What's the only problem with that? What was going on? A famine, a drought. But yet he says to this widow, give me some water. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, oh, bring me a morsel of bread as well in your hand. And she said, well, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Hello! She's like, uh, you want me to give this to you? Do you, under, do you look around? Do you know what's going on here? Do you realize that there's a famine and we've got nothing and it's me and my scrawny son and we're about ready to die. So that's why I'm gathering these sticks. I'm not about ready to whittle a little ship or something. This is the last fire that we have for this last little meal because we're going down. And you want me to give this to you? But check it out though, man. Elijah does not back down. Check this out, verse 13. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as, you, as you've said, go make it, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. Does that sound like a polite house guest? No, but what's going on here is Elijah wants her to recognize that he's just no ordinary wanderer. 
He's a prophet of God. And in that culture, the prophets of God are really anybody that came in as an important guest. You serve them first. So Elijah's saying, just trust me. I believe in God. He's been pouring into me. I've got a relationship with him and I've got my faith in him. Look what he says in verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. If you do this for me, he says, God will miraculously provide for you. And it was true. So while everybody else, as a widow, she was automatically one of the poorest people in that town. No husband to provide for her. No one to protect her. And yet Elijah's there with her and he says, because you've done this for me, because you're, you're holding me in your house while God is continuing to prepare me, he's going to miraculously provide for you. And it happened. Now's where things get really wacky. It says in verse 17, After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you have against me, O man of God? You come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Now just imagine Elijah in this moment. Okay, I've had this encounter with God. He's got great things for me. I want to be zealous for him. He's already poured into me when I was laying by the brook and provided for me. Now I've got this weird, awkward situation where I'm hanging out with a widow. I mean, just imagine, bring yourself into that story and every day it's like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, more, more bread and water. Okay, good. Like all day and just there in the town and everybody's like, who's that weird dude staying with that widow that we know? Nobody knows, it's obscure, but he's like, all right, God, I'm waiting for my time. I'm waiting for my time. I'm waiting on you. And then all of a sudden, this woman's son dies. And notice what she says there. Why have you come, O man of God, and brought my sin to remembrance. Now this is really important here this morning because when you talk about a relationship with God versus an organized religion and system, she's making reference to that. There was a huge belief back in this time and even up until this day that you know we're, we're on a merit works based system. We do good things for God and line them all up. He's going to bless us. But man, if we mess up, he is going to punish us. And that's what she's saying. She's saying, listen, I'm no, I'm no saint. I've done some bad things. Thanks a lot, Elijah. Your God has now taken my son because of my sin. You see what's going on there? So in other words, God's favor in her life, it's based on what I'm going to do. What I can accomplish I've messed up, and this is the wreckage. Should be no surprise to us, right? We see that in the New Testament as well. Remember Jesus with the paralytic? He was crippled, and all the people said, well, we've got a question for you, Jesus. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Because somebody must have sinned in order for him to be punished like this, because that's how you work. Right, God? But I love what happens here. And Elijah said to her, give me your son, verse 19. And he took him up from her arms. Just picture this. 
And he carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, you have brought calamity even upon this widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son. And then he stretched himself upon the child three times. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child life come to him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came to him again. And he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to the mother. And Elijah said, see, your son now lives. Can't you picture this? Man, do you remember some of those scenes? I don't know, back in the day, you know, we used to watch a show called Rescue 911. Remember when that started? Or like, you remember some of these scenes in your mind? Like, you remember that baby, Jessica, in Texas who fell down this huge well? Or other of those scenes that you can picture over the last many years where some child was in danger or injured? And that moment when miraculously, you know, after working all night and drilling down deep in this well, they pulled this child up and there's spotlights and people all around. And like just that moment of new life again is like, no way, that's awesome. But I want, what I want us to realize about this act right here is that Elijah did so much of this stuff in the secret he wasn't even downstairs where the child had died and the widow was there. And oh, let's, let's get an audience. Let's call everybody in. God's going to do something great and amazing. No, Elijah picked up the child and walked up the stairs in complete solitude and spread him, laid over his hands over the child and prayed three times. Oh God, I'm pleading with you in the silence. It's just you and me. Please God, help me out here. Please work in this situation. Preparation in the quiet. And I wonder how often in our lives as we think about that kind of intimate relationship versus the organized religion that we see so much of. I wonder for many of us how much of that time is spent in preparation. Remember Elijah's probably like, well God, is this all we got here? Is this it? This dusty old town? I mean, I'm not doing anything. I'm not speaking to anybody. I'm not giving any kind of platform. Is this really what you have for me? Are we not wasting my time here, God? But it was in those moments of silence and in that secret that God was preparing him and showing himself just to Elijah without the audience. And it's there after he was prepared that we enter the second act, which is in chapter 18. Skip over to chapter 18 of 1 Kings, next page. And we call this the spotlight of experience. There was preparation in the quiet, and now we've got the spotlight of experience. The famine's been going on now for three and a half years. And Elijah now, after spending time alone with God in that kind of relationship, is full of confidence. Because in the beginning of chapter 18, after, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go ahead, now's the time. Show yourself to Ahab. And I will send rain upon the earth. Now's the time. Ahab, that king, the one who's in charge of all of Israel and all the worship and all the atrocities. Now's the time. So the spotlight's slowly turning on. The experience is about ready to be here. And if you've been around church for any, any number of years, you probably remember this part of the story, right? So here's Elijah, he comes down, he confronts the king. He said, go ahead, I challenge you right now. Get 450 of your prophets of Baal 
and get 400 of your prophets of Asherah and let's have a big showdown. It's on. Let's do it. So 850 of these prophets come down along with the thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, people of the nation of Israel that are coming to watch this big scene. And Elijah said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to see who's God, is God once and for all. So let's build two big altars and let's put a sacrifice on top of the altar. And we're each going to pray to our God and we're going to see which one is real. Now what you need to recognize here this morning is Baal was the Canaanite god of the sky and fertility. So the fact that there was a famine going on for the last three years, that was an affront to all of these people because they were continually praying to the god of the sky to bring them more rain and bring fertile ground so we can have crops. So of anything, you would think that this is right in Baal's wheelhouse, right? He's the God of the sky. And so we're going to see which one of these will call fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice. If you do a Google search on the Canaanite Baal, you will see many times he is characterized holding a lightning bolt. Because he was the God of thunder and lightning. And so this big pageantry, all this is going on. They did a little coin toss. Who's going to go first? You know, uh, Elijah deferred, you know, so... Prophets of Baal and Asher are going first. And so they begin this external display of prayers and crying out and pleading with their God to come through. Started early in the morning, and, uh, and I want you to look at verse 21. Elijah says, how long to the people will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. There's no more dancing around. It's time to make a decision. You can't serve both. Skip down to verse 27. They started early in the morning, so they've already been at this three hours. All these prophets with their pleading and praying and dancing around. Verse 27, it says, And at noon, Elijah mocked them. Elijah was a pretty sarcastic cat right here, okay? Now, this is just so beautiful. Check this out. So Elijah began to mock them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, which means like daydreaming, not paying attention, or he is relieving himself. This is the Bible. I'm not making this up. This is potty talk. They're saying, um, maybe Baal is just taking a long time. Maybe he's having some problems. Maybe you need to kind of call him and tell him, put down the USA today. Finish up. It's time for something here. Hello? He's relieving himself. Where is he? Maybe he's on a trip, on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and needs to be awakened. And he's just egging them on because he's so full of confidence in this spotlight of experience because he's got a relationship with the God of the universe. Check out verse 28 and it says, And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and with lances until the blood gushed out upon them. So here's where it's ratcheting up another level and you've got to catch this. 
They're basically saying, our God's not hearing us. Our God's not responding. Our God's not doing anything. What if we show him that we can do even more and we're even more dedicated and we'll cause ourselves pain and inconvenience and we'll begin cutting ourselves saying, look how much we love you. Look how much we love you. Please come through for us. Talk about the idea of religion. And definitely not to that extent. I don't know of the 4,200 organized religions, if there's too many, that have cutting yourselves as part of the worship service. But the idea is there. That man, if I just do more, God will hear me. If I just give more, if I just serve more, if I just can, can accomplish these different things to get the favor of God, maybe then he will intervene for us. And I love what scripture says in verse 28. It says, and then midday passed and they raved on. That was the first rave right here. It was not a good scene. But I love the end of that. It says, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. It was empty because it was man's effort to get God's favor. So then Elijah comes on the scene. The stage is set. The spotlights are there. Okay, he says, all the people come near. Come closer. Make sure you can hear me. Tens of thousands of you prophets of Baal. Thanks for that. There's some band-aids over in the back. But now it's my turn. And so I love his sincere prayer right here. If you skip down to verse um, 36. It says, at that time, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Oh Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God of Israel and that I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, oh Lord, answer me. Listen to this, hear his heart, that this people may know that you, oh Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. He's saying, God, I care about these throngs. Show them your glory. I want their hearts to turn back. Please, God, come through. And then even to make things worse, he had them pour uh, water on his sacrifice three different times. Notice the correlation between praying three times and three different times pouring water on the sacrifice. And when God, when God came through after, after Elijah said amen, there was a giant thunderbolt that came down and destroyed the sacrifice and licked it all up. Victory, celebration, it was one of those moments. And you can, maybe in your life, you've had some of those moments. Maybe you've had that celebration, that spotlight, that time where you're just like, yeah! But I want you to notice what happens shortly hereafter. So here's Elijah, God's come through. It's an amazing narrative and it's happened and it's the spotlight of experience. And listen to this, it says, verse 39, and when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord is God. So all these people see it, God came through. Baal is a big fat zero. We're serving Yahweh. They fell on their faces, tens of thousands of them. And they start chanting, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In the Hebrew, for Lord, it's Jah, like Jehovah. And God is Eli. You get that root word in Elohim and El Shaddai and a lot of other Hebrew words for God. So you've got Jah and you've got Eli. The Lord, he is God. Jah, Eli, Jah, Eli, Jah. 
Elijah. That's what his name is. That's what his name means. And now you've got a sea of people that have just seen this incredible victory and they're chanting that out. And here you've got Elijah living on the moment, living high. All right, we did it. Let's go grab the 450 prophets. Let's kill them. Let's slaughter them, these enemies of God. These are we're at war with. These who have killed the prophets of God. Justice is being served. And then he goes up to the mountaintop and he prays fervently again for rain. God, I know you said now's the time. Go back and check. Is the rain coming? Is there a cloud coming? Seven different times. His servant comes back and says, I do see a cloud. It's about the size of a man's hand coming up from the sea. So in Elijah's mind, he's like, all right, experience. It's happened. God, you came through. Rain's coming. People have seen it. This is great. People are going to turn. So notice he goes over to Ahab. He's like, all right, hey, by the way, you better start going because the rain is coming. Just as I said, remember, Yahweh is king. And so let's go. You better go back to Jezreel. That's where uh, Jezebel is. And that's where the center of your kingdom is. And that's where all the rulers are. Let's head back there and let's tell them all what's happened. So Ahab gets in his chariot, starts booking it off towards Jezreel, about 20 miles away. And the scripture says that Elijah, empowered by the Spirit of God, lifted up his robe so that his legs could be free and clear and starts booking it and runs in front of the chariot all the way to Jezreel, about a 20-mile jaunt. Now the great historian and author Ray Vanderland says that this is incredibly significant. Because in that time, a kingly processional typically had about 50 people running in front of the chariot. Almost like a secret service. So anytime the king would be going in his chariot, he'd have this entourage out running in front. And that was a place of honor. It was only the most noble and significant soldiers that were in that place. Could it be that Elijah was so fired up from this and from everybody chanting his name, the chant ringing in his ears, thinking that this was the time Israel was going to get turned completely. All the hearts were going to go back to their master and this is the way it's going to happen. So I'm leading the processional and I'm in my glory and here we are and we're coming to the gate and everything's going to change. You ever been there and set up for something huge and amazing that you were fully convinced of? only to find supreme disappointment waits for you. Act 3 is called The Strength of Solitude. Chapter 19, verse 1, as this victorious processional comes close to the gate, here's what happens. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd kill all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Elijah's thinking, well, Ahab gets it. Ahab saw. He was there. Baal, no. God, yes. I said, pray, rain's coming. He's seen it all. And he was heading straight back. How could she not be convinced? She wasn't convinced in the least bit. 
and said, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead just like what you did to my prophets. I don't care what happened in your little firestorm. I'm out to kill you. And so Elijah returns again to the wilderness. He went out there on his own in the secret, in the quiet. Verse 4, it says, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. I'm done. I'm cashing it in. Notice this in verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Could it be at that moment when Elijah was living through these failed expectations and things weren't going the way he wanted and he just turned and ran and went up in the wilderness fearing sorry for himself and just laid down exhausted. And when he woke up, what did he see right next to him? A cake of bread and water. Could it not be that God was reminding him of his provision when he was with the widow? When he said, ask her for a cake of bread and ask her for a vessel of water. Could it be at that moment that God was not saying, you know what, just just take a look back for a second and look at how I've been with you and look how you didn't understand at those moments, but the relationship we have is such that I am striving with you and I am patient with you and I am traveling with you and I am here to support you and to encourage you and will you look back and see that I've been faithful. Let this remind you of that. Strength in the solitude Follows as Elijah then took a 40-day and 40-night journey through the desert towards Mount Horeb. God didn't tell him to do that. This was on his own. He was like, you know, I don't know what's going on. I just got to get out of here, and I need to go to the place where I know that God is. And man, I, that name rings a bell because we just talked about it last week. Mount Horeb is the ancient name for Mount Sinai. And this is where Moses met with God, the mountain of God is what it's called in Hebrew. And so Elijah's saying, God, I just need you. I need to be connected to you. I'm going there. It took him 40 days and 40 nights. He got there. He got up there. He went into a cave. It says in verse nine there, he came to a cave and he lodged in it. Most commentators agree that this was the very cave that it was said Moses was in. You remember when God took him and hid him in the cleft of the rock? And here's Elijah saying, I need that experience. I need to see all your power because I'm just not sure what's going on right now. So I'm going to be in this cave and God, meet me here. Chasing after somebody else's religious experience. Have you been there? Jealous of somebody else? You hear their testimony. You hear about what God did there and, and you, just want, you just want that for yourself. You want to see that display? We've got some of that going on here. Listen to this interaction. It says in, in verse, uh, God, God says to him in verse 9, it says, A word of the Lord came and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets by the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life now. 
Verse 11, and God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. You can see Elijah's like, yeah, that's right. I want to see your glory just like Moses did. I want to be up there and I want to see all your glory. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke the pieces of the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. All these incredible external displays, that's what he was looking for, but it wasn't found there. God caused it to happen, but he didn't speak through that. He chose a different avenue in this next phrase. But after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out. It was in the whisper that God spoke to him. It wasn't the massive display. It wasn't in the spotlight. It wasn't in the public eye. It wasn't the way that it was uh, there on Mount um, Carmel. It was in the quiet. It was in the whisper because they had relationship. I want to bring it to a close here as we talk about this story because I really just want us to think about our connection with God. Of the 4,200 registered religions, there's about 21 main headings for those religions, main categories for those religions. And just about all of them, except for one, is dependent on what you do, what you can accomplish. And maybe for some of us here this morning, you've been a part of that type of system. When you think about connection with God, maybe you think about a big event, even Sunday morning might be that for you. This is where God is. This is where we listen to somebody talking from the Bible. This is where we sing songs about worship. This is where we pray a little bit. This is the experience right here. Okay, I got my relationship with God. Awesome. Nope. If that's all that there is for you, that's leaning pretty heavily towards the religion side of it. The relationship side of it is what we see so clearly in the life of Elijah. Or he had the spotlight, and there was definitely that viewing, but where God really did the work in his heart was in the secret. Jesus references that in Matthew, right? Where he says, you know, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites because they're on the street corner and they're talking. They want everybody to see him. Truly, they have the reward in full. He says, instead, here's what's better. Here's what relationship is. When you pray, go into your secret place. Go into your inner room, the closet of your house where no one sees. And there God will whisper to you. Do we have that here this morning? I saw this one quote that said, religion is when a man goes to church and thinks about fishing the whole time. Guilty. Relationship is when a man goes fishing and thinks about God the whole time. Which of those do you have? When we talk about God is greater than religion, he came to abolish that system of merit and works and righteousness and instead paved the way and opened his arms for a relationship with us through Jesus Christ 
so that no longer is it dependent on our good works. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which I have done, did he save us, but according to his great mercy. As we end, I just want to do a quick comparison for you of religion versus relationship. Religion is based on works. Relationship is based on grace. Religion consists of empty worship. Relationship with God is fulfilling satisfaction. Religion is largely motivated by others. Relationship is motivated by the Father. Much of religion consists to give glory to yourself in a relationship. You have an intimate connection with Jesus. And religion is based on what you can do. Relationship is inspired by what's been done for you. So I don't know where that finds you here this morning, but just know that Elijah was sustained twice by bread and water. God was his sustenance with bread and water. And Jesus is here for you now. And in that same motif, he has said, I am the bread of life. And he said, I am a fountain of living water. And he wants to establish that with you. Even this morning. You think about that power of God and you think about what the display was there on Mount Sinai and compare that to Acts chapter 2. And when the Holy Spirit came, there was an earthquake. There was the sound of a rushing wind. There was fire. So we know that God's powerful and there's those big, huge moments, those celebratory moments, those external moments. But maybe what God wants to land on with you this morning is that there's a whole lot more that needs to happen in the secret, in the whispering, in the quiet places. And I'll tell you what, there would be no greater thing this morning than if there'd be somebody here who'd be like, you know what, I've been playing that religion game for a while. I've been giving, I've been coming uh, to services, I've been doing all this stuff, but it's just not fulfilling, and that's because it's not real. Maybe for you this morning, starting a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, is what you need. So, Father, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for this incredible text. Just this great narrative who, as your word says, Elijah, who was a man just like us, with a nature just like ours. He got discouraged. He got frustrated. But, man, did he do a great job getting away and listening and being poured into from you. So, Lord, we just pray that Northwest Community Church would be a place where people have a vibrant and intimate relationship and aren't bogged down by the weights of mere religion. We love you, God, and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he paved the way for us. We thank you that he's the only way, and we want to sing to him now. It's in his